Hello and welcome to the Art and Design of Sci-Fi and Fantasy, Mystery and Horror. Today I speak with uh, Tuba Gadesi about her book on how, I guess you could say, people who look different uh, were, were represented and dealt with in 16th and 17th century European courts. Uh, she focuses on dwarves, as they were called then, hirsutes, and castrati. So we talk about the uh, how, how otherness and, and alternative uh, appearances were dealt with back then, touch a little bit on how um, what that means today. Uh, we talk a little bit about uh, fantasy art, how it's sort of influenced by this these old works of art from the 16th and 17th centuries, and also we touch on Game of Thrones briefly as well, um, Tyrion and, and that sort of thing. So definitely very interesting talk in regards to art, art of that which is different or unusual to the human eye. And uh, we talk, and actually we talk about how uh, these individuals were not that different um, in the way uh, they lived and dealt with um, the noble courts. All right, well, thank you and enjoy. I'm speaking with Professor Tuba Gadesi, author of Portraits of Human Monsters in the Renaissance, Dwarves, Hirsutes, and Castrati as Idealized Anatomical Anomalies. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you for speaking with me. It's my pleasure. So first, tell me, how did you get into studying and writing on this subject? It was actually um, quite random. It's a series of me as well. I was always interested in the history of anatomy. It's something that fascinated me, and I had attended medical school for a couple of years, and so when I went into graduate school, I sort of pursued that interest with history of art, and one of my colleagues brought this fantastic portrait to my attention, and it was a very detailed portrait of a dwarf. It was really akin to an anatomical dissection, but done visually, and I just thought, I have, I have to do something with this. I have to figure things out, and it just slowly led to other images and lots of discourses about how to figure out um, what our human difference means and what it has meant for centuries. Mm -hmm. And uh, you went on and got your PhD in... in I did. I actually... And so I was at Northwestern University and little by little through research... Um, it was in the history of arts with a focus in the history of anatomy mm -hmm. in the 16th century, 16th and 17th century. And so, as one does, you know, you just pursue research and one question leads to another and that question leads to something else and you end up with a thesis because you have very supportive colleagues and mm -hmm. mentors who help you write it. And then, you know, I got lucky enough to then have a position that allowed me to not just pursue my research and scholarship, but to actually be able to teach it to students, which really put a different lens into what I was doing, because it forces you to think about its relevance for people who don't know as much on the topic as you do. So it's very refreshing, and it's a really good exercise. Mm -hmm. So tell me about uh, the book. So the book is essentially a series of case studies, um, but I wanted to place them in a way that spoke to not what is odd about them, but what they say about the concept of difference. Mm -hmm. So what makes us think about 
monsters. What does it mean to be a monster in the 16th or in the 17th century? And that is related to what it meant to be a human in the 16th and the 17th century and how the idea of difference is used by so many people to ostracize a certain group of people so that they can exercise power and control over them. And at first I just thought I was looking at these fascinating images about anatomical difference, but then the more I worked on it, the more I realized that I was talking about a history of difference and that the sort of the larger themes at the core of it are still very relevant today because the idea of making someone an other in order to control them is very, very prevalent. Mm-hmm. So reading the uh, first chapter, I believe it's the first chapter that I was reading, uh, you mentioned okay. sort of, uh, I think Ravenna, uh, uh, as they put it, a monster was born, and then I guess the, the city suffered some catastrophe. <laughs> yes, so, and that's a, that's a great summary, yes indeed. <laughs> so it makes me wonder, apart from the anatomical differences, to, to treat someone as a monster, does it also require sort of a certain mindset, you know, a, you know, a, a feeling of a divine creature putting something like this on the earth? Yes, so actually a, a monster, so even the etymology comes from various places, which is, it, it has the significance of there's divine wrath. Right, so God is angry because man has done something that he or she wasn't supposed to do. So God is angry and warning humanity that something will happen if they don't correct their path. So definitely a sign of divine anger. But it can also be an omen in the sense that God may be saying, hey, watch out. If you don't do what you're supposed to do, something may happen. So you still have a chance, but watch out for what might be happening. And so how are these signs read? This is where I think when you're talking about one has to be prepared, one has to be ready to welcome this idea of monstrousness. That is very true. It happens at culturally charged moments where people grab onto what they see as signs in order to justify their actions or in order to justify other people's actions to say, well, this wasn't our fault. It just happened to us. This was There was a divine sign and it happened to us. So with the monster of um, Ravenna, there was a whole analysis of, well, this is what it looks like. These are all the emblems that are based on this monster's body and this is what what is going to happen is going to happen so it really is about series of justifications that find themselves both in theology and in the natural sciences and they're combined to speak to divine power but a little bit also to men's parts into that discourse um and and i think that again in a sense this is still relevant today because the idea of justification and faith and divinity intervening is something that we do see um, happening still today. So would you say that uh, at that time um, a monster would have been considered a being that was fundamentally different from humans apart from, you know, and I'm thinking in terms of skin disease or maybe, you know, cancerous tissue or something, you know, burns and stuff, I guess, wouldn't make that person that apart from their fellow human being, whereas is the monster just fundamentally different if identified as a monster? 
So this is when it becomes really tricky because I was hoping that I would find these very definite categories. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a monster, this is not a monster. And so this is why I was also very careful in the title of my book. I talked about human monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, the categories are very porous. For example, the dwarves were super popular and they became almost an emblem of power. So if you were a duke, if you were a king, you wanted to have dwarves surrounding you and you wanted to have um, dwarves with a very specific kind of dwarfism because it was about these proportions that you wanted to have in the bodies of these dwarves. And when you possess these dwarves, there were objects that were given as gifts. You actually find them in inventories listed as objects, or they were diplomatic gifts that were brought by people to other people. On the other hand, some of these dukes also gave these dwarves lands. They gave them money. They, ev- they even allowed them to get married, which made them into any regular human being. Mm-hmm. So they were really oscillating between being a monster and being a human being. And then you talk about visibility, and one of the chapters in my book deals with castrati, so men who were castrated around the age of seven, um, and then they were trained musically to sing uh, with the, the ability to sing soprano notes. If you saw them, you wouldn't necessarily know that there was something about their bodies that was considered to be non-normative. Mm-hmm. However, they fit the categories of being a monster because they didn't fit a sort of binary of gender divisions that was expected um, of a lot of regular citizens. So this idea of monstrousness is very porous in that it really oscillates. And then there were some monsters that were more popular than others. And then in a lot of treatises, we see monsters that are completely created that were not real so hybrid marine monsters for example that were mm-hmm. half whale and i don't know half um wolf that are in the sea or something so then there's these are these completely imaginary creatures mm-hmm. but they all coexist in these cultural moments because they allow human imagination to grow and they also allow for justification of humans um, toward themselves to understand who they are and who they don't want to be. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask how you chose the three different categories. You haven't yet discussed the the hirsute. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yes, you are, yeah. So So the dwarves, the hirsutes, and the kestrati, right. And how did you pick those three categories? Um, it started with the dwarfs, I must say, just because in the 16th and 17th century they are so prevalent um, that the more I researched them, the more documents I found. And so spending time and spending time in archives and reading a lot of letters and inventories and contracts and even legal trials, they were omnipresent um, in engravings and paintings and sculptures. So that was sort of an easy an easy walk into um, looking at human and anatomical difference. And as I was studying them in records, I found that other mostly, so other monsters were listed as well. Mm-hmm. And those were their hirsutes. So in a sense, they were sort of an accident that happened mm-hmm. through the research of the dwarves. Mm-hmm. And there was one family in particular that appeared um, over and over again, and it was the Gonzalez family. And I just, I could not, not study them. Mm-hmm. Um, again, because they appeared in the record and they made sense, and there were also the link between several of the larger European families that I was studying. 
and the discourse about their bodies was also fascinating, is that how do you describe someone who is covered in hair, you want them to remind you of something wild because you want them to fit into a certain category in the the 16th century. Mm -hmm. And yet, um, this family in particular, the father was educated at the court of France and he was taught to fight like a knight with a sword. He was taught to read and write in French and Latin, which um, made him part of a very elite number of people, and he was allowed to marry and have children. Mm. So there was this fascinating discourse about what were they, who were they, and then what happens when wars happen and families get destroyed and they have to find a way to live. Mm. And then finally, the Castrati, I have to say, that was my first love, is because there was this amazing portrait of Marcantonio Pasqualini, who is um, an amazing singer um, in the 17th century. Mm. And there was something, there was a dissonance in that painting that I wanted to find out. And the more I read about um, anatomical dissections and anomalies, the more I learned about hermaphroditic bodies, Mm. and the more I understood about the very complex gender divisions or lack thereof in the 15th and 16th century mm-hmm. and how that also worked into making a body a monstrous body mm-hmm. and I thought that that fit very well with the other two case studies that I had because it pointed to a monstrosity that wasn't visible but that was audible mm-hmm. and how do we deal with that how can we understand that a monstrosity is audible when you're actually painting it or when you're writing about it so that's how they all sort of came about so perhaps this doesn't isn't touched on in your book but I'm curious how the mentality or say sanity of these individuals would affect how they were perceived and accepted in court and and that sort of thing you know did they Mm -hmm. if they were insane were they definitely a monster that had to be locked away and feared or how did all that work if you if you research that no, so that, that's really interesting, and I actually encountered some of that in my research. I, the more you research, the more you have to decide what it is that you want to focus on and what you leave to the side. And thankfully, what I left on the side is part of my second book project, so at least I can go back to it and reuse it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the idea of sanity is actually really interesting because they were jesters at court who were named such and such the crazy ones. And they were entertaining, so they were part of the retinue of the Duke, of the King, of the Prince, and their, I would say, their mental state was, in a sense, used as their entry to court. So what is difficult here is that one cannot really assess whether they truly suffered from um, a mental illness or whether they adopted that persona in order to find survival at court because that was a great place for a lot of people to be in because we're talking about a very, very small segment of the population who who is at court and who benefits from the court. So if you could find an entry into a court, you would do what you could to get an entry in there. There is some overlap between some of the dwarfs and some of the, as I said, the, the... in French, we say les fous, the crazy ones. Um, some of them do overlap in that some of the dwarves are called uh, crazy ones, and here I'm really using a 16th century nomenclature. Um, but often there are divisions between the jesters and between the dwarves. 
as far as the other categories that I've looked at, um, there is a separation as well. Hence the issue, because I think that, for example, for the gear suits, a lot of riders would have liked them to be wild and to be untamed and mm-hmm. to be, in a sense, crazy, but they weren't. They were educated. And so that made it complicated because they were, in a sense, in a liminal position between the categories of humans and savages. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that answers your question, but it is. The, these, these categories are quite porous, though there's always an attempt to delineate them in the 16th, 17th century. So apart from the main subject that um, you're discussing in this book, are there any other issues or themes that we haven't touched on yet? I mean, I I always think that there's so, so many of them. and hmm. I mean, the, the quote with which I open my book, and it's one that I I actually thought about much later. It was, it was way after my book was written that I just decided that that would be to open the book, and it's a quote by Salman Rushdie um, in one of his books, and it says, this may be the curse of the human race, Mm -hmm. not that we are so different from one another, but that we are so alike. Mm -hmm. And to me, this is really at the center of this book and at the center of a lot of the things I study, which is why... I make sure to talk about the fact that it's about a history of difference and not necessarily a history of otherness because otherness means that there is someone at the center that defines what normalcy is. Mm -hmm. But when we talk about a history of difference, anyone can be different from anyone else. No one defines that normalcy. Difference is a completely relative notion. And I think that's something that I want to push more toward and and study more intensely um, in a way that allows for a lot of circles to to overlap and a lot of discussions to occur. And I think that that can be transposed to a lot of other discourses and not just about bodily difference, but about the way in which, you know, the world is conceptualized as well. And in this case, too, I mean, what I have found to be really interesting is how, how current fiction and science fiction and a lot of um, creations have looked at these moments, in my case, 16th, 17th century, so we're talking about the Renaissance, but Mm -hmm. looking at these depictions and looking at these people who were a very strong presence at court and have readopted them and captured that essence Mm -hmm. and given them a new voice today. So I'm always very interested to see how that happens in um, creations today, how they're reappropriated and given a new life. And often my friends say, well, don't you get annoyed that it's historically inaccurate? And I don't. I love it. I mean, it's, it's fantastic to give life to something that one finds interesting. My job is to provide the sources and to provide the um the primary, the primary archives that substantiate the history. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, I provide facts and I provide the theories that accompany those facts. But if that can inspire someone to want to animate those people, mm-hmm. there's nothing better. I love it. Yeah. A lot of um, fantasy artists today, you know, they look back to, th- there's, there's a line, sort of a, a you know, a line going back to the Renaissance masters, you know, their paintings influenced people and so on and so on. Even even today, the fantasy art is so um, 
and obviously there always fantasy art involves you know images of people and things that are different you know both fascinating right. and, and frightening and that sort of thing so um yeah I, I definitely agree with you there um and and also game of thrones obviously you know you have you know that's 50 that's based on 15th century war of the roses and su- stuff but still applicable um Sure. There's some 11th century appropriation design. I love, I love watching this and then having discussions with my husband about, you know, what works and the types of armors that are used and what kinds of, um, what kinds of relationships are being, um, enacted that are tied to historical narratives. And I, I just find it amazing. And I think that, I mean, in that case, if you look at, um, Tyrion Lannister mm-hmm. and the idea that his physical anomaly actually pushes him toward a, a a different kind of discourse about who he is and how he places himself as an advisor, but also the types of access that he has. Mm-hmm. To me, that is wonderful, and again, a, a use of historical narrative in a way that allows for imagination to animate, animate that. So. Well, but speaking with you, um, it's interesting because you know when when I think most people who see him in Game of Thrones are like think, oh wow, you know, isn't that interesting? Uh, you know, a dwarf is is having such power, and, and they think it's just an interesting twist. Whereas talking to you about what you found about dwarves in royal courts, they did have a lot more influence and power in different ways, which I think a lot of people nowadays wouldn't have have thought of or suspected. That's true, and it's it's really interesting because because they have they seem to be entertaining and harmless. And yet, they listen and they're there for the most intense discussions of the, you know, ruler of the court, would say the Pope, or with another ruler, mm-hmm. and they know what is going on, and they bring that knowledge with them. So they become really trusted advisors. They may not appear as such publicly, and they won't necessarily sign things publicly, but the rulers know, and they rely on them for making those decisions. So it's it's definitely something that is prevalent, absolutely. And I, be- I believe, if I'm not mistaken, um, the ancient Egyptians, I think, believed dwarves had special accounting powers and would use them as accountants. And I think in Norse, myth- uh, Norse culture, I think dwarves were considered, had some special powers and were put in, in their own separate, you know, villages. Um, I guess that's a sort of that's segregation there, but... Um, if I'm not mistaken, those are at least two prominent cultures that, that sort of venerated, you know, I, I hate saying dwarves. I feel like that's not a proper term, but that's, So this is, I mean, I was going to say, I'm using 16th and 17th century terminology, which, which I explain in my book is intentional because it's, um, it is not meant to be offensive. It respects an etymology and the history of the term, Mm -hmm. um, in the 16th and 17th century. So in in your case, it would work if we're talking about ancient Egypt and and classical Rome as well, um, Mm -hmm. I must say. So there's a long history of, um, dwarfism and how that is understood in various cultures mm-hmm. and in a sense there's this notion that they were a representation a perfect miniature representation of a human being and thus must have had special powers mm-hmm. to be that perfected miniature representation hmm. um yeah sorry I went a little bit off off 
top. No, of no, that's actually no. It's very true. I mean, there, there's some um, there's some tombstones that are actually really affectionately written um, about dwarves who who passed away mm-hmm. in classical Rome and in ancient Egypt. So we we do know that there was um, it was definitely emotional attachments and and a different kind of understanding about how they fit into those societies. So you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. So what body of scholars in the 16th century and 17th century primarily studied uh, people with these anatomical differences, you know, and these questions that you bring up? So that's, I mean, it it really is varied. Um, I started because I was looking at um, painters who, by virtue of being employed by courts, were painting courtiers and dwarfs were part of those courts as were hirsutes and as were castrati because they were sponsored by these rulers so painters are a fantastic source of knowledge for this because they would apply their own um, painterly theories Mm -hmm. to representing these bodies that fell outside of the canon that they were taught in academies Mm. so it's also these moments where they can move outside of what they're taught and apply a little bit of other things to representing these bodies. So I started, again, with, with visual artists um, that moved to engravers as well. There's some sculptures um, of um, dwarfs as well. And then in my case, because I look at history of anatomy, um, there are specific anatomists who are looking at these people and who are interested in studying them as exemplification of pathologies. And this is quite new in the 16th um, century in particular, to move away from the idea of simple divine omens or the fact that nature does nothing in vain, to really look at these bodies as pathologies and try to understand why they differ in the way that they differ. So without condemnation, um, but looking at why they differ. Of course, there's some of these um, anatomists and surgeons who have these parts um, in their in their treatises that they write. They look at them as one could call it today objectively, though in the 16th century it's not quite so. Um, but they look at them and they analyze how these bodies um, look and how they function and yet the following chapter is about God's wrath and why that happened and then it's about hybrid monsters that actually don't really fit into those categories so we have these sort of oscillations back and forth between actual anatomical observations and then going back to theological um, demonstration mm-hmm. but yeah usually it is paint for me it was um, painters engraver and engravers anatomists um, natural scientists and some philosophers as well. Mm-hmm. So, you can, so I wanted to ask what resources you use for your research. You've discussed some. Are there more that you'd like? Can you expand on that a little more? On what what you use? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, beyond the sort of the primary sources of the the actual paintings and the actual engravings, which you know, you, you were, as an art historian too, you worked with very very closely. Um, I was able to look at a lot of inventory, so it's essentially a list of everything that was possessed by a certain person at a certain time. Mm-hmm. So I would compare all these inventories from year to year, see what had changed, and I would be able to trace say, the um, clothes that were purchased for the dwarves or for the hair suits, the garments that were purchased for um, an operatic performance for a castrato. So I would really follow very closely 
because I've followed the money, right? It tells you a lot. Um, this led me to account books as well. Um, sort of the, what, what are called journals of, um, entries and exits. So what is sold and what is being purchased. And because that tells you a lot. If somebody is spending a lot of money on one of their dwarves and you see that happening over and over every year, you know that this dwarf was actually quite cherished as part of this family. You don't just spend money on someone for no reason. Mm-hmm. And then one of the things too with these um, records is that then suddenly one year you see that nothing is done for that dwarf anymore and that allows you to figure out that this person has passed. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are very, very telling. I looked at a lot of letters. I read a lot of long, lot of letters. Um, mm-hmm that were written from one courtier to another speaking about their daily routines and what they had done that day and the spectacle that they had attended and that takes a lot of time because you never know what people are going to say about their day and so I was really Mm. trying to figure out what kind of quotidian place the dwarves or the hirsutes were having in their life. Um, For the castrati, I also looked at legal accounts because often it was about um, whether property could be passed on to castrati um, since they weren't able to reproduce and have heirs, had that would function. So trial accounts were something that I um, looked at as well. And then because I was looking at artists, um, contracts uh, for paintings and um, productions of other works of art were something that were um, very telling as well. So where do you find these um all these documents. Uh. <laughs> well, it's um, you have to trace them. So in my case, because I'm looking mostly at northern Italian courts and um, some French courts, I spent a lot of time in Florence. Mm. I spent some time in Bologna, Ferrara, um, and I was in Paris as well, and in the Loire Valley. Mm. You essentially just follow the primary documents and Archivio di Stato and Archive Nationale, so just the, the national archives for all of these places. And it can mm. be it can be very frustrating because um, you don't know what you're going to find. You hope you're going to find it, and you have to keep a record. And you just you know you sometimes it's like looking for a needle in a haystack and you end up finding a different needle and you follow that path but I mean it's it's years and years of research it, it seems when you look at the book you're like oh it's kind of small there it is but it's uh, hmm. years and years of research are these documents um, photographed or microfiched or anything like that or do you have to I was, I was physically there um, and you're actually touching you know 16th century letters hmm. um, and just as using, a, you have to be able to decipher them as well. Mm-hmm. A lot. I mean, this was about ten years ago when I started. I'm trying to think back on the years, but mm-hmm. um, a lot of things are today. Um, they're digitized, which makes life a lot easier for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So the Medici Archive Project, for example, has a lot of these documents digitized, which um, allows for easy access, but fewer trips to Florence. So I don't know if that's good or bad, but mm-hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, a lot of them, you just, you're there and you're looking, and sometimes you have a wax paper seal that just falls, you know, on your computer as you open your huge batch of documents, and um, those are really happy moments, but it's, yeah, a lot of them, I was lucky enough to be able to go physically in the archives and stay there for a few months and do research and, you know, physically be there, touch the, touch the documents and do, do the work. What part of the research was most enjoyable? Um, 
I mean, aside from being in some of the most beautiful places in the world, um, I would say just knowing that you are following these stories that eventually make history. And my goal is really to illustrate the voices of these people that weren't necessarily amplified at first. So they often have fallen on the margins of history, and I think that they're quite central to history. Mm-hmm. It is through difference that we define ourselves. And um, it, that was a big motivator for me, was to to tell myself, okay, just keep on going, even if you don't find something today or tomorrow mm-hmm. or this next month, keep on going. I'm sure that, you know, this... Morgante, who's, you know, the big, the, my favorite dwarf here, but Morgante's voice is going to come out somehow. Just just try and find it, try and find it. And mm-hmm. the most enjoyable moments were when I did find um, those voices in the documents that I was looking for. And just knowing no one else had looked at some of these was amazing. And I just felt that I was being useful. And I was hopefully helping bring to light some of the stories that history had left aside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just I, I just imagine the castrati, you know, he's still singing to this day through your through your work. <laughs> you know, oh, that's sense. lovely. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's just the thought that popped in, yeah. Um, oh, that's lovely. <laughs> so what did you find that was most surprising in your research? I think I was, because I was taught to be so objective and so rational, and this is history, and we are leaving all emotions aside, I was not expecting to be so emotionally involved and to see so many emotions in the documents that I was studying. Mm -hmm. There's a genuine affection that becomes more and more transparent as one reads those documents. So, for instance, for Marc-Antonio Pasqualini, the castrato, his patron genuinely, I believe, cared for him. He wanted to help him. He wanted him in his household. Or for the Hirsute family, I believe that Catherine de Medici Valois really cared for them. She, They're staying in the French court until the year she dies. And only when she dies do they have to leave, and that is years and years after her husband dies, who was the original protector of that family. So through the documents, you really see her attempting over and over again to protect them, to make sure that they don't have to spread through Europe and essentially become show monsters. But she wants them to remain at the court of France under her protection. And that is never stated per se, but it is, again, those inventories those expenses, those are very telling. And I was I was surprised. I was not expecting to see emotional connections um, transpire through those documents. Hmm. Was there a question or issue that was particularly difficult to research that uh, just took a while to get an answer to or maybe you're still grappling with? I mean, I would say most of them I didn't <laughs> Everything takes so, so long that there are moments where you just, you've been looking at incomprehensible writing for months and you just want something to come up. So those moments were tough. But as far as answers, I think I wanted to, when I first started, I really wanted to have an answer. Are, are these people considered objects 
or subjects in the 16th and 17th century. I wanted a black and white answer. And I, and I really started with that idea. It was, I didn't know what I was going to prove, but I knew I was going to prove it was one or the other based on the documents that I would find. Mm. And increasingly, and I think I've only reconciled this with my own self, they're neither. And they're both at the same time. And I think that that seemed to be perfectly fine with 16th and 17th century audiences. Mm. And that was a big lesson for me too because the idea today that we seem to be opening our eyes to the notion of non-binary genders, to the idea of welcoming a variety of differences. A lot of people say, oh, that is so modern, and it's not. It is something that was present in the 16th and 17th century. Things were a lot more fluid um, than I think we tend to believe, hmm. and so I, I wanted to have a yes or no answer, and I didn't, and I'm really glad that I did it. Hmm. So you already um, mentioned something that was emotional for you in this research. Um, do you have any other examples of, of things that either positively or negatively moved you as you did your research? Um, quite a bit, I have to say. Um, for example, with the with the Hirsute family, the younger girl, Antonieta Gonzalez, she sort of disappears after a while. She, we assume she gets married and, and she disappears. And even though I really wanted to not apply my own fictional narrative to, to her I, I hope that she disappears because she marries someone and has children and her children aren't here suits so they're of no interest to a lot of natural scientists and she's left alone and that's a good thing it's being able to be left alone and have the life that she was taught to have because she is taught to read and write as well and in a sense her absence was emotional, but it, it made me want to believe that it was not because she, she died early in age, or, but just because she became non-interesting for people, and that was a good thing. Not being interesting would have been a good thing. There were also some, for me, one of the things, and I knew from the beginning that I couldn't deal with this, was um, cruelty toward animals, and you read that quite a bit in a lot of these anatomical um, documents, which is, there's a lot of vivisection that is done, and hmm. I have to say, even though everything about the work that I do is objective, and I understand that it is a lens toward the 16th and the 17th century, and we do not apply our own um, judgments to the 16th and the 17th century, it was very difficult for me to read um, about the ways in which animals were used. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was those were moments that I knew I simply just could not push through, that I would have to sort of set that research aside, take a breath, and try to recalibrate um, with sort of ideas to, to, to do something different. So those were a little a little tough moments that I didn't want to really have, but yeah. Hmm. So what do you hope the book will do, ultimately? Well, <laughs> that's, yeah. a, that's a big question. I think that... Um, 
I'm, I'm so pleased to be able to, to speak about this with you. So already the book has done what it, what it should be doing, which is to spark conversations, mm-hmm. um, about humans and about human difference and about how we can find out about human difference and the fact that difference shouldn't be used as a tool to create divisiveness, but as a tool to understand our own selves and each other better and Hopefully, it also provides scholars with sources that I hope can be um, can be helpful in understanding more about the history of that difference and the history of the case studies that I have. But I think ultimately, I'm just pleased to talk about a historical precedent for how we can today think about human difference and inclusivity and and the ability to speak about it, to not ignore it, because that's also not a solution to sort of pretend that everyone is the same and everything is perfect it's not that we need to be able to speak about it in informed ways so if the book can help with that I would be delighted okay good can you speak to any difficulties you had in finishing or getting the book published and how you overcame those <laughs> sure huh. um, yeah well in academia it's all, you're always overworked I mean that's just what happened huh. so in my case I was um, I was very lucky that as I wasn't even done with the dissertation and I got a tenure track job, but that also means that you're teaching and you're doing, you know, you're on various committees in your new university and you're basically doing work all the time. So balancing research and work is quite tough. And then I became chair and then, I mean, it was just a lot to do. So it was really just time management. I made a choice to work, and I was very lucky because I had a mentor who was amazing, who was at Wellesley, who always told me to consider quality of life in whatever choice I made. Mm-hmm. And she said, that will allow you to make the right decisions because of the right decisions for you. And so I made a choice to work with a senior acquisitions editor who was so kind and so patient that getting the book published was actually not an issue because she guided me in what I needed to do. Mm-hmm. So it was um, it was just a matter of finding time and then eventually just gathering things and pushing it forward. The research, of course, you know, is, is hugely time-consuming and that takes years, but mm-hmm. eventually um, the publication is just a matter of finding the time, focusing your mind on doing it, and in my case, being lucky to work with someone like Erica Gaffney, who was, again, patient and smart and kind and generous and very, very helpful. So that's what I would recommend to everyone. Find someone who mm-hmm. will be kind to you and who will help you as you do all the work. Hmm. So you touched on your next writing project. Can you uh, elaborate a little more on, on what you plan to uh, write? Sure. So once I find the time, because you're not being associate provost, is taking a little bit of my time. Mm-hmm. Um as I was saying, I think that there are these things that one finds when one does research and you, you just don't have time to include all of them, and I set some of them aside, and it continues on the idea of a monstrosity, but it presents them in more um, in a more theoretical fashion, and so I'm moving toward French courts. And I'm looking, I'm starting with a portrait of François Premier as a hermaphrodite mm-hmm. and looking at alchemy and what that means mm-hmm. for this portrait. I believe that he's actually not an androgen, 
an androgynous being, but rather a um, superhuman being, meaning he has both genders in one place so that he can generate the state. And so I look at the evolution of what that means for friends until we get to his grandson, Henri Trois, who is also represented as a hermaphrodite in pamphlets that are strongly against his rulership and say that essentially because he's a hermaphrodite, which he is not, but because he's a hermaphrodite, he's unable to rule in a stable fashion over friends. So what I'm looking at is this idea of gender monstrosity and how it is at first created in order to assert rulership, mm-hmm. but then how it is being used by the people of France against the family of rulers who essentially invented it, so how that turns against them. So where can people find uh, the book? And also, um, do you have any social media or website where people can follow your thoughts and, and, and work as it progresses? Oh. Well, um, social media site, not really. My faculty profile would be where you could find all this information. Mm-hmm. So if you just Google my name, that's something that comes up um I think it's probably the first or second thing that comes up. Mm-hmm. And the book you can find um, on quite a few sites. I think it's on Amazon right now as well. Mm-hmm. So yes. that would be an easy place to find. Mm-hmm. So that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts? Um, no, just very thankful for the discussion. And, uh, yeah, really happy to have talked with you. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. One of the best ways in which you can provide feedback for this podcast is to rate me on iTunes. Uh, Please give me a good rating if you like this, or uh, feel free to give me a bad rating if you didn't, and I'll use that feedback to hopefully make this a better podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram under Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi, on Facebook under Chris Alvarez WLC, on YouTube under Chris Alvarez WLC and on Twitter under Chris Alvarez WLC. You can also get more information on my website chrisalvarez.com. Please remember my name Chris does not have an H, so it's C R I S A L V A R E Z dot com. Thanks for listening, and keep imagining the future.